welcome. And if you're new, we've been doing a sermon series. This is week six called You Asked For It, where we you know, literally uh, polled some people and uh, took nine questions from that poll. And, and this is the question of the day. I think it's a good question. It's a common question. My non-Christian friend, or I think we tried to maybe broaden it a little bit. I think it was literally uh, my atheist friend is the best person I know. Uh, will God let her uh, into heaven? Or maybe we could restate the question, make it a little broader to say, can a person, can we get into heaven by being a moral and a good person without believing in Jesus? Now, uh, surveys show almost three-fourths of Americans say that they believe in heaven, that heaven's a real place. I don't know what you believe. My guess is, since we're in church, that probably the percentage is, is higher than that. I mean, I believe that heaven's a real place because I believe that the historical evidence indicates that Jesus rose from the dead, and he taught that heaven's a real place. And if he came from there and he's been there, I'm going to take his word uh, for it. Uh, but, so, I mean, that's one question here. Do you, do you believe that, that, that heaven is a real place? But then the question would be, do you believe that you're going there? Uh, according to some research, about 54% of Americans say that they believe that they're going to heaven. And then maybe the next question would be, is why do you believe that you're going there? And in the same poll, about 48% of Americans said that if you're a good person, if you do enough good stuff, you'll get to go to heaven. Uh, about a third of people in that poll said, no, you can only go to heaven if you receive Jesus uh, as, as your Lord and your Savior. So what is the answer, but what do you think? So I, I want to pose a question to you this morning. I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but I would encourage you to just think of the answer for yourself, what you would say right now if you're honest in your own mind. Okay, so let's just assume that someday you're going to stand before God. Someday you're going to answer uh, to God. And uh, the question would be then, if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? What would your answer be? If God said to you, why would I let you into heaven, what would you say? And I encourage you to think about that. And I think it's an important question. I think if you believe in God at all, if you believe that heaven is a real place at all, it's important to know how to answer that question. Now, the question in the poll, and again, it's what a lot of people think. About half of Americans think if you're a good enough person, which could be defined by morality, good deeds, things like that. But if you're a good enough person, God is going to let you into heaven. Now, it sounds kind of logical on the surface, I think. Like, if, if, if there is a God, he's probably a good God, and heaven's a good place, and if it's a good place with a good God, it would kind of make sense that good people would go there, right? Like I say, it makes a lot of sense on the surface. But, let's dig into it a little bit deeper. Let me ask some questions. What's good? Who decides what's good? Who decides what's good enough? How do we define what's good enough? If you're not a Christian, you may say, well, you Christians are going to say that God in the Bible gets to define that. Why is that the case? 
And, and, and what I would say is, I don't believe we can really define good apart from God. And you say, why? Because if there is no God, we have no soul. And if we have no soul, why would we even think of, in categories like good and evil? I mean, if we're just material beings, uh, products of evolutionary processes, uh, why are we even thinking that way? But even beyond that, again, how would we define good in a human sense? Because different people and different cultures don't define good in the same way. And if as our society would predominantly say today that relativism and multiculturalism are true, how do we then even ever begin to define good and bad? Here's what I mean. So on August 17, 2021, the Taliban released a statement after they had overtaken Afghanistan, saying that they would protect the existing rights of Afghan women, quote, within the framework of Islam. Now, let me ask you a question, ladies. How many of you want your rights and what's good for you defined by, determined by the Taliban within the framework of Islam? Does that sound good to you? Anybody want to move to Afghanistan and, and, and sign up for that? But if everything's relative and multiculturalism is true and we're not really, it, it's, it's bigotry and prejudice to critique another culture, how can we say that's wrong? But if we say that this should be a woman's rights, they say that should be a woman's rights, how do we decide between the two? If you look at history, and I could give dozens of examples of this, here's a few. But there's places, cultures, and some would here and there would still say animal sacrifice is okay. Infant sacrifice is okay. How about widows burning themselves uh, on the funeral pyre after their husbands die in India? Things like female circumcision, other types of, of body mutilation. There's cultures that would say that that's good. We say that it's bad apart from God and some kind of revelation from God. How do we actually even begin to decide? So what I believe is that God gets to define what's good. And so he would get to then define the standard for going to heaven and who's good enough and who's not good enough. And, and, and the reality is, I mean, if you take Jesus seriously, and I think you should uh, because he rose from the dead, and if you're not sure about that, that's where I would tell you to start in your spiritual journey. That's what I did in, in my spiritual journey. It's like, did this really happen? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, that answers the other questions. But here's what Jesus said about us. He said, as recorded in Luke 18, 19, there's none good but God. There's none good but God. So, if that's true, how do any of us get to go to heaven then? Who gets to go to heaven? I want to give you the biblical answer to this question. And you have to decide for yourself what you believe. I want to try to show you why that I think that it's true, uh, why the Bible's right uh, on this issue. But uh, will God let my non-Christian friend, who's a great moral person, in, 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 into heaven? And I believe the answer is no, because heaven is a place of perfection. And good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. 
good people don't go to heaven because if Jesus is right and none of us are good, then what basis are we going to have to get there on our goodness? The Bible teaches us that forgiven people are who that, that go to heaven because none of us are good enough. None of us measure up. And, and why don't you understand, when I talk about good and bad today, like I'm not saying you're like an immoral person, a bad citizen, something like that. I'm talking about good and bad through God's eyes. Not how we compare to other people. Okay? So, if you got a Bible, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't, the verses will be on the screen or pull it up on your phone. But I want us to, to, to look at, again, if this is the right, if, if heaven is a place of perfection, and if, if it's not good people who go there, if it's forgiven people who go there, you know, why would that be the case? And I want to show you four reasons from the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And so here, here's the first reason. This is kind of the bad news part of the message. It'll get encouraging as we, as we go along. But, but the reality is, is in the eyes of God, we're all sinners under His judgment. So none of us are good enough. We're all sinners under His judgment, so none of us is good enough. Let's start with looking at the first three verses here. We're going to see God's assessment of our spiritual condition. First of all, He tells us in verse 1 that apart from Christ, we are the walking dead. Look at what verse 1 says. He says, You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, the Bible teaches us that apart from Jesus, that we're physically alive and we're spiritually dead. The, the Bible teaches us that it says that our sins separate us from God. And uh, separation is the essence of death. Like when we die physically, our body and our soul separate. Eventually, they're reunited in the resurrection. But at the moment of death, uh, our body and our soul separate. But the Bible teaches us that because we're born with a sin nature, we're all, and we're all in the same boat, nobody's any better, uh, any worse than anybody else, that, that we're born with this sin nature, we're born spiritually dead, separated uh, from God. And so what this would mean is, is that just like a physically dead person can't respond to physical stimuli, a spiritually dead person can't respond to spiritual stimuli apart from a supernatural work of God. We need a spiritual resurrection because we're not sick, we're dead. Understand, we're all dead. You know, and dead's dead. Corpses may be in different states of decay, but dead is dead. Understand, I'm not saying that some people outwardly aren't worse sinners than others, but the issue is we're dead. That's our problem. Uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, ultimately matter, at least as far as getting right with God, how far we've gone in committing particular sins. The issue is ultimately our sin nature. And understand, some people think that, that Christianity is about outward stuff, it's about moral reformation, it's about becoming a better person. That's not the case. The gospel is not that Jesus came to make bad people good. The gospel is Jesus came to make dead people live. And then because we're alive in Christ, we can outwardly live a new life because we're alive in Him and we have a new heart and a new spirit. And it's not about us trying to earn our way to God. It's not about us trying to do better. It's about Him transforming us, making us alive, changing us 
from the inside out. But apart from him, we're the walking dead. But we also see here in verses 2 and 3 that apart from Christ, we're controlled by the world, the devil, and the flesh. Look at what the text says. It says, in which you once walked, which means lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. See, sometimes people think, and maybe they do, that Christians like look down on other people, think better than other people, that kind of thing. Actually, I think it's only through what the Bible teaches that we can all be truly equal. Because here's what the Bible teaches. We're all made in the image of God, which makes us equal. We're all dead in trespasses and sins, which makes us equal. And we all can be redeemed through the cross of Jesus Christ, which makes us equal. That is the basis for our equality, which makes it, what makes it so stupid for us to look down on other people because we're all in the same boat. I mean, that's where we all are. So uh, he says, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we're controlled by the world, the devil, and the flesh. What are these things? The world is the system of this world's values that oppose God. Clinton Arnold put it this way. He says, here Paul uses the world not in the literal sense of creation, but in the theological sense of people organized in their opposition against God. This could be interpreted to refer to the various non-Christian religions, ideologies, philosophies, values, and economic systems, as well as to the more mundane but the equally powerful influence of peer pressure, fashion, the media. These influences provide a script for living day-to-day life apart from God and His values. Understand, the world around us is trying to shape us into its mold, which is part of the battle and the temptation that we fight every day. That's what he's talking about. He's saying apart from Christ, we're going to live uh, according to this world's values and not from according to God's values. But he says here also, and I know this is hard to hear, uh, but he says the devil spiritually controls those apart from Christ. Jesus said in John 8, talking to the Pharisees, who were the most moral, religious people of his day, that you are of your father, the devil. See, here's the deal. According to Scripture, we can only have one of two spiritual fathers Either Satan is in control of us or God is in control of us. And listen, you, you, I'm not saying like if you're not a Christian that makes you a Satan worshiper or you're out, you know, sacrificing animals or drawing pentagrams or that kind of thing. Satan would be happy to take you to hell as a wonderful, upstanding, moral citizen that everybody thinks is a great guy or a great lady. Or he'd be happy to take you to hell as a party animal. He doesn't really care as long as he has your soul. But that's where we are. The flesh here is our own sinful nature that we're born with, we're controlled by, apart from the resurrection power of Jesus Christ transforming us. He says here also in verse 2 that we are disobedient. He calls us here the sons of disobedience. And let's be honest. We have all sinned thousands and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of times in our life, if we really stop and think about it, at least those that are old. I mean, right? I mean, if you just sin like 10 times a day and live to be 70, that's going to add up to several hundred thousand sins over the course of your life. 
I mean, we sin by what we do, by what we say, by what we think, by not doing uh, the right thing. And again, you may say, you're like, I'm, I'm a good moral person. But think about it this way. I had somebody say this recently. I, I thought this was very powerful. What's the Bible say is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if you're not a Christian, even if you're a moral person, you don't love God because the only way you can love God is to love his son. It's what the Bible tells us, to, to believe in Jesus. And we can only love him because he first uh, loved us. And only by responding to God's love can we have love for him. So think about it this way. You may be a great, moral, upstanding person. But what this person said that I thought was so powerful is, wouldn't breaking the greatest commandment be the greatest sin? Wouldn't breaking the greatest commandment be the greatest sin? We're created to love and worship God, and if we're not doing that, it doesn't matter how great other people think we are. God is not pleased with us. And then he says here in verse 3 that we're under the wrath of God. He says, we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. John 3.36 says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe uh, in, in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God is his settled, righteous, just anger towards sinners. His holiness compels him to punish all sin. So, this would be God's assessment of us spiritually. You say, Jimmy, you really believe that? Don't, don't we believe today that people are just like naturally good, corrupted by their environment and, and, and those kind of things? I mean, in college, I minored in sociology, and that's basically what we were taught. Is, you know, people are naturally good, but then our environment corrupts us and all these kind of things. And even while I was getting a degree in sociology, I never quite understood why, how these wonderful people could create such bad environments that then made us bad. Never quite added up to me. But no, I, I believe that we have a sin nature. I believe in original sin, in depravity, if you want to use those theological terms, that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. Why? Some of you heard me say some of these reasons before. But again, I look at little kids. Right? you got a two-year-old. You shouldn't argue with this. Because you've spent hours and hours and hours training them to do the right thing. And while they may be cute, they're cute little hellions. I mean, they do the exact opposite of what you, you tell them to do and tell you no and spit and bite and kick. And, you know, one of them's probably beating up another two-year-old in the nursery right now over a toy. It's because it's in us. We're sinners. We're sinners. I mean, you look at history. You look at the news. I don't know, history records that we're just a world full of wonderful, awesome people treating each other in great ways. You know, where did that come from? I mean, I think the fall is an explanation that corresponds to reality. I mean, think about it. Societies have been, in on this, been built on this idea that we're naturally good and we can create a utopia have always ended up creating the opposite. You know, when I look at those that I love, I don't have, I mean, I, I think I'm very blessed to have wonderful, awesome kids, but I have no problem saying they're sinners. I mean, my wife is the most wonderful person I know, and I, anybody that knows her in a human perspective would say she's a good person, but she's a sinner too. I mean, I know this very well. <laughs> she's not in this service. <laughs> But, but e even more than that, I know some of y'all will tell her I said that, but <laughs> I said it Friday night when she was here. I'm, 
not a complete wimp. But, you know, when I look in the mirror, I don't have any trouble believing this. I know how sinful I am. I know my thoughts and my attitudes and my motives a lot of times. I don't know what I've done and what I haven't done that I should have done. And I'm generally trying to do the right thing. There's something in us. I think even beyond that, what we have to understand is you have to understand that God defines good as perfect. So we have a different definition, like, you know, I'm kind of better than that person, or I haven't done this or, or, or that. Um, you know, but we can always find somebody better than us. We can always find somebody worse than us. I mean, we're so relative. I mean, I've literally had men that I've been sharing the gospel with before tell me that they're a Christian because they don't beat their wives. I mean, now that's like setting the bar. That's about as low as you can go, right? I mean, if you can't beat that, you got some real issues. But God defines good as perfect. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the glory of God is his, uh, all of his inner, inward perfections manifested in some kind of brilliant light. Its standard is his perfection. And ultimately, there's no point for the cross if we're all good. If we're good enough to get to heaven on our own, if we can earn our own salvation, why would Jesus have died on the cross? So when I put these things together, I believe what the Bible says. I believe God's assessment that we're not good, that we're sinners, that we stand under his judgment. And in a way, that's the bad news, but in a way, that's good news. Because once we begin to understand that, we can actually really begin to understand the gospel, the love, and the grace, and, and the mercy of God. You see, because he, he gives this assessment of uh, our condition, but he, he's about to, to, to go 180 here. You understand, those are some of the hardest words in the Bible to read, what we just read. But it's setting up some of the most glorious words that you could ever read in the next seven verses. But particularly, even the next two words. If you want the gospel in two words, it's, it's the first two words of verse 4. He, he said, we're dead. We're under the control of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're disobedient. We're under the wrath of God. We're, we're under his judgment. We deserve death and condemnation and hell. But God, this is who we are. This is where we are. This is what we've done. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. And I want you to notice something as you read this. When you read the Bible, it's important to notice the verbs and who's doing the acting in the verbs. Uh, even when we were dead in trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who's doing the acting in those verbs? It's God. It's not us. And doesn't that make sense? Because what can a dead person do? Nothing. That means that we're not good enough to get into heaven uh, because we're dead. It doesn't matter how good we are. It matters how dead we are. And if we're dead, the only thing that can make us right with God, the only thing that can get us into heaven is the supernatural work of God. And what these verses tell us is that is what God has done in us and for us 
through Jesus Christ. He has made us alive. He's raised us up together. He's made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. This is His grace. We deserve His wrath. He's given us life. We deserve hell. He's given us heaven. Uh, we deserve death. He's raised us up. We deserve separation. He's made us one in Christ together with Him. This is what He's done for us. And you see, if we were like pretty good people, Maybe all we need be like a little assist. Kind of like if, if we're like, um, you know, out in the water flailing, like Jesus be the lifeguard that swim out there and help us get to shore. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is we were dead at the bottom of the ocean. He dove in, pulled us up did spiritual CPR, breathed new life into us, made us alive in Him, raised us up together with Him. Salvation is the supernatural work of God. And see, when we understand how sinful we are, how dead we are, then we began to see the mercy and the love that, that He's talking about in these verses. And I hope today, if you're not a Christian, you'll see this mercy and love, and you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. If, if you say that you are a Christian, are you living like Jesus is this good and this powerful? Are you just kind of, uh, you know, just going on with your life, just kind of doing your own thing? Because to me, this, if this is anything, this is not the kind of message to be on the fence with. It's to go one direction or the other with. You see, what this is saying is that God doesn't love us because we're so lovely. He loves us because He's love. God doesn't save us because we're worthy. God saves us because He's merciful. Think about it this way. I want to read you something from D.A. Carson. I just love the picture that he paints here of, of the love of God. He says, picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand, at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They have kicked off their sandals, and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large, hazel eyes, and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, in this day and age, he may, may mean nothing more than he feels like testosterone on legs, and he wants to go to bed with her as soon as possible. But if we assume that he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile slays me from 50 yards away. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, Everything about you transfixes me. I love you. Some of you single guys may want to write that down. <laughs> Maybe your application today. You may need to use that sometime. Um, Maybe some of us married guys, too. Uh, what he most certainly does not mean, though, is something like this. Susan, quite frankly... You have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy that it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed that you make a camel look elegant. 
Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. So now God comes to us and says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That, after all, is pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God is pretty vulnerable finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. When God says that he loves us, doesn't he mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you're the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But I love you anyway, not because you're attractive, but because it is my nature to love. That's the gospel. And so to me, that's such good news. Because if we're honest, deep down we know that we're messed up. Deep down we know, maybe not even deep down, we know that we've blown it so many times. But to know that we're loved, loved to the point of the cross, not because of us, but despite us, that means that nothing ever could separate us from the love of God. Because it wasn't based on us to start with. That's love. And love prompted Jesus to come and die and rise from the dead so we could die to the old person and be raised to walk in the newness of life. Not being made better, being made alive, being made new. Salvation is the supernatural work of God. But the third reason that being good won't get us into heaven is that the purpose of salvation is the glory of God and not human boasting. The purpose of salvation is the glory of God and not human uh, boasting. Verse 7 says that in the ages to come, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 says, not according to works, lest uh, anyone should boast. See, there's not going to be any boasting about ourselves in heaven. All the boasting is going to be in Jesus Christ. But think about it. If we're good enough, or we earn our way into heaven, couldn't we brag about it then? But that doesn't sound very heavenly to me. I mean, what would heaven be like if, like, if we're just sitting around talking about all of our accomplishments and how we got there? If like Preston's like, man, I was an elder at True Life Church for however many years. He ends up being an elder at True Life Church. And I put up with Rusty and Jimmy uh, for all these years. I mean, like if that uh, qualifies anybody to get to heaven, you know, I, I mean, I deserve a lot of crowns for putting up with those clowns. <laughs> or, or Heather be like, man, I, I, I put up with Will Roach all these years. I mean, I really earned my way here. Give me a pat on the back. <laughs> Or whatever, you know, I, I sang in the band, or, uh, you know, I, I took care of little kids, and then, you know, all the, our, if we're listing our accomplishments, 
And, and that's, we were just sitting around doing that. For, I mean, does that really sound like a great place to be? I mean, that sounds like a bunch of old dudes sitting around trying to relive their athletic glory of their teenage years. And, you know, it gets blown up into something that it never was. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. We're not boasting about ourselves, but the Bible teaches us we're going to be worshiping Jesus Christ forever, glorifying Him. You know, in heaven, we're going to sing the song of the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. All of us, people of every tribe and people and tongue and nation, worshiping Him around the throne of God, saying, you're worthy, you did it. I'm not worthy. I shouldn't be here. But I'm here because of you, glorifying Him, not us. And I just encourage you to think about this. You say that you're a Christian, but you have no interest in your daily life in worshiping Jesus Christ. Or you have no uh, real desire to gather with God's people and worship Him corporately. Are you going to want to be in heaven? Are you really saved? But, like, you know, there's certain environments that we don't want to be in. That we don't feel comfortable in. And you see, someone who doesn't know Jesus would not actually be comfortable in heaven. It's part of the reason why good people don't be there or won't be there. I mean, there's just certain things that would be uncomfortable or unenjoyable to us. Here's a question. Be honest. All right. Show of hands. How many of you like would hate watching baseball? Like, okay, you put your hands down. So, I mean, I get, like, if you had to watch baseball all day long, it would just be, like, boring and, 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 and awful to you, right? Take, games take a long time, a lot of dead time. I mean, you kind of got to get the subtleties of it to enjoy it. So, you wouldn't enjoy that. How many of you, how many of you like country music? All right. I hate country music. I have the best son-in-law in the world. I have one quarrel with him. He's gotten my daughter to liking country music. <laughs> um, but like, so if you told me I got to sit around uh, all day and listen to country music or go to a country music concert, I mean, that just doesn't sound enjoyable to me. Or like if you uh, say I got to go to the opera, like I'm not cultured enough for that. That just doesn't sound exciting to me. Or if you tell me oh, i got to sit around and pet cats all day. I mean, that's just, that just doesn't sound enjoyable to me. I'm just not suited to those environments. There's certain environments you're not suited to. And listen, if you're not forgiven, transformed, and loved with Jesus Christ, you're not suited for the environment of heaven, and you wouldn't want to be there. It's not just by being good. It's by knowing Jesus because it's about his glory. It's about who he is, what he's done for us. Heaven is not going to be us sitting around bragging about how awesome we are and how we earned our way here. That's the reality. So we're sinners and the judgment of God, that means we're not good enough. It's a supernatural work of God. That means that we're not good enough. It's for the glory of God, not for our boasting. That means we're not good enough. But ultimately, salvation is the gracious gift of God that cannot be earned by our goodness or efforts. Notice what the last three verses of this passage say. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has foreordained, that are prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. You see, you know, this original question, my non-Christian friend's the best person I know, why wouldn't God let her into heaven? There's a couple of questions that flow out of that. You know, if you believe there is a heaven, you believe good people go there, how are you good enough, what do you do to earn your way there? Well, this verse says you can't do anything. But there's also another question, I think, that flows out of this that people ask a lot, non-Christians would ask, and, and, and it's a legitimate pushback, I think, towards Christians because people say, well, you know, does this mean you just pray a prayer and God forgives you and you live however you want to live? And like, this person is a terrible person. They say they believe in Jesus. This person is a good person. They say uh, they don't believe in Jesus. And one goes, the, the, the bad person goes to heaven, the good person goes to hell. Does it work that way? Well, not exactly. Just praying a prayer with the idea of you can still live your life however you want to live it is not salvation. Salvation is the supernatural work of God. It's an inward transformation. And, and, and this verse says, I mean, think about it. Uh, verse 9 says it's not of works. But then verse 10 says we're his workmanship created for good works. How does that fit together? It's saying we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. But we're saved unto good works. The Bible says in James chapter 2, Faith without works is dead. And if we really have faith and Jesus is really in our life and he's, he's really transforming us, it's going to work its way outwardly. We're going to try to obey God. There's going to be fruit. There is going, we're not going to be perfect, but there's going to be a change in our lives. And if there's no change, there's no salvation because the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So, Aaron, put those verses back up again. Let's look at them again. For by grace, God's unmerited favor, God blessing us when we deserve judgment, you have been saved through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. We have to repent and believe. It says, not of yourselves, the gift of God. Not of yourselves. We can't do it. It's a gift from God. It's not of works because if it was works, we could boast, but there's no human boasting in heaven. It's all about the glory of God. So, I want to close by us thinking about a gift, okay? And we actually have a gift for somebody today. It's a real gift. It's not, this is not just a prop or an example. There's nobody staged in the audience. So, who, who wants a gift this morning? All right, come up here, Ellie. All right, um, you trust me? Uh, you sound a little hesitant there. All right, you might trust me too much because you might should have asked what the gift was before you volunteered. You like coffee? Okay, so I don't know if this is good or bad. So what we have here is a 60 Beans gift card. Do you, do you work at 60 Beans? I do everything free. Uh, <laughs> all right, sit down. All right, who, who wants... Who wants a 60 Beans gift card? All right, come on, Angela. Should I ask, I guess? All right, so 60 Beans gift card, we give you a gift. 
I'm offering this to you as a gift, what can you do? Okay, what else could you do? Like Ellie. <laughs> she didn't need it. Uh, she didn't actually reject it, yeah. Okay, so, so it, it's a gift. So if I give you a gift, could you pay me for it? Wouldn't be a gift. You'd be purchasing it, right? You say, well, if you give me this 60 Beans gift card, I'll give you an Aubrey's gift card. That'd be a gift. Uh, that's a trade, right? So uh, you say, well, or could I say, well, I'll, I'll give you this gift if you'll come wash my car for me, which wouldn't be a bad idea. But yeah, you, 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 you'd, be, you'd be working for it at that point, right? Wouldn't be a gift. The point is, oh, thanks. It's, it's yours. The point is, for something to actually be a gift, it has to be freely given, freely received. You can't pay for it. You can't trade for it. You can't work for it. You'd be earning it. It'd be a wage, not a gift then. See, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we sinned, what we have earned is death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. God offers you freely the gift of salvation because Jesus paid the price for it. You can freely receive it, the Bible says, through faith. Jesus said in Mark 1.15 to repent and to believe in the gospel. To repent is to turn from our sin, our self-will, to acknowledge that we're headed down the wrong path, opposing God, and, and to turn away from that and turn to Christ in faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for our sins. He did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life. So He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die because we've sinned. But He died in our place, bearing our sin and giving us his righteousness in exchange, that we're credited with his perfect obedience, where when God looks at us in Christ, he sees us as perfect and obe- not good, but as perfected forever by the blood of Christ because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death. He rose up from the dead to give us new life. But then Romans 10, 9 says, If we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, which would presuppose that we believe that he died for our sins. We believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. The next verse says, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I want to ask you this morning, have you received this gift of salvation? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And do you believe that you're a sinner? That the only way to God is through Jesus? That he died for you? That he rose from the dead? And if so, have you confessed him as Lord? Which means that you're trusting in him and him alone? That you're surrendering your life to him as you repent of sin? You're you're saying, Jesus, take control of me. resting in you, I'm relying on you, I I need you, I want you to change my life. If not, I want to give you the opportunity to receive this gift this morning. If you're a Christian, and we read what God says in his word about how much he loves us, and the sacrifice he's made for us, 
and, and, and His resurrection power in us. Can we just go through life doing our own thing? Can we just go through life on, on, on the fence? Some of you today need to surrender to Jesus afresh and anew and say, take control of me. I love you. I want to live for you. I want to worship you. I want to honor you. There's sin that you need to repent of in your life. And he invites you to do that today. Would you bow your heads and, and, and close your eyes?